Well, the rest, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to, the, I almost said Gospel of Acts, um, Book of Acts, that would be tremendous. And um, we're going to look at verse, or chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 22. And, um, you know, in order to benefit from what is good, if we're going to do that, if, if we're going to benefit from what is good, I must positively deal with the barriers between me and that good. You think about that? That I want to experience a good, but in between me and that good, there's some barriers, there's some obstacles, there's challenges, there's things that want to push against me to maybe keep me from, from that good. I had a student that's graduating from high school this year and uh, wanted to attend Biola University, but that didn't work out for this particular student, and it kind of really, really hurt their heart. I said they can't can't quite get there, and, and they need to go to a junior college for two years, and, and so they're, they're really bummed about that, and they were like, Mr. Charles, what do I do? And, and they were trying to figure the whole thing out in one day, and for some reason, this, this student put all the pressure on themselves. They put all the pressure on themselves to figure out their life at 17, <laughs> and I said to the student, I said, hold on, hold on. I said, you're worried about being a success. You're worried about successfully moving through your college experience. And I said, and because you're worried about your success, you're, you're, you're trying to figure out everything that needs to be figured out. I said, if you would simply agree with me right now as we're talking that whatever barriers you face, you will overcome and you will succeed and you'll deal with it slowly, you'll deal with it patiently, and um, you'll just settle in your mind right now that I don't know what barriers I will face, but whatever those barriers are, I will overcome them with the help of God and with patience and, and wise counsel. And I said, after you graduate, I can't do this now. I said, after you graduate, I'll give you my cell phone number. And when you're a college student, then you call me and we'll work together. We'll you'll get you through. Well, we'll you're, you are going to make it. You're, you're going to succeed. And he was a little bit relieved about that. And um, so and he tends to, his father's not in the picture. So that's a huge, huge barrier for him. Right, and um, so he has his mom and, and some other family members, but, and as the oldest child, he's got a brother younger than him, and so he's, he's kind of feeling that pressure. He's worried about his younger brother. He's trying to do all this stuff, and I just said, let's just agree that you're going to succeed. Let's agree that whatever barrier that's in between you and your college graduation, you're going to make it. He goes, okay, I, okay, Mr. Travis. I said, it's whatever it is. <laughs> he said, okay, I'll stop trying to figure all this out. But you know what, when, we're, when we think about that good, whatever that good might be, we have to determine whether that good is worth it, right? It, is, is that good worth it? Is, is it? is it really worth it? Have you ever been in that situation where you're thinking you're, you're facing a boundary, you're facing a barrier, it's a big one, maybe it's bigger than you, maybe it's new to you, maybe there's a lot of quest, questions that you have about this barrier in your life and you're thinking, is the good that I'm chasing after actually worth all this headache? Is it worth all this bother? Is it worth all of this struggle? Is it worth maybe people thinking negatively of me as I face these boundaries? Is it, is it worth maybe some suffering that I have to go through in order to achieve this good? Is, is it really, really worth it? Is, it? is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that valuable? Is it that significant? Is it that true, that, that big of a life situation. We are constantly answering those questions, and I would imagine that right now, sitting where you're sitting, you're probably thinking about various things in your life. Maybe you're thinking about a relationship. Is, is it worth it to keep fighting for this relationship? Is, is it worth it? Um, maybe something's going on with your career, and you're, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it doing? And um, as I collect data for my dissertation, I have to ask a, this question to pastors. I say to them, I say, how do you know like when you should just close the church or seek revitalization? And a lot of questions are coming into that, but it's like, is, is it worth it? Is, it, is, is a church, is a church family, a community worth the effort that everybody has to pour into it in order for that group of people to be able to move forward and to be stable and to be, um, I guess you want to, successful could be a word that you could use there, but to be viable and vibrant again, is, is, is it worth it or should you just throw it away and let's plant a new church and start a new thing and 
bring in a new group of leaders and those kinds of things. And you always have to ask yourself, well, what is the value of the thing? What is the value of the goal? Okay? And so this morning, I want to try to ask you a question in regards to the people that aren't in the room today. And you're probably thinking, Pastor, you're, you're kind of on this a little bit ever since we started studying the book of Acts. But Pastor, you're really kind of focused on people that aren't in the room. And some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor, what about me? I, I have things, and I have things going on in my life, and I have questions going on in my life, and, and, I'm, and I need to come to church, Pastor, and I need you to... Um, I need you to give me something from God's Word that will help me um, deal with these day-to-day issues in my life. And, and yes, we want to do that. And yes, I want to teach the Bible in that way. But more and more as I'm drawn to the book of Acts, I'm drawn to this question and, and, and this focus of people that aren't in the room today, people that you love, people that you care about, and people that Jesus cares about. And part of me today thinks about Jesus when he tells the parable of the, of the 99. And he says, um, I've got um, 99 sheep in the pen and one's out lost. I need to go find the one that's lost. I, I got to go get that one. And the other 99 might be saying, well, hey, what about us? We're, what about if a wolf comes in after us? What, what's what's going to happen here? Oh, you know? And Jesus says, well, you're in the pen. You're, like, you're here. You're, you're like safe. You're, you're, you're good. I know that there's some dangers. I know there's some issues. I know there's some things going on, but, but you're good. You're, you're in a relationship with Jesus. You're eternally secure in Christ. You have been reborn. You have been forgiven. You've been regenerated, restored, all of those things. You are born again. You are alive in Christ. And whatever you're facing today, Jesus has a plan for that. And Jesus is leading you and guiding you and protecting you. He's doing all of these wonderful things in your life because you are alive in Christ. And then there's a whole other segment of our population, people that you love and care about, that are outside of that. Now, they are not outside the love of Christ. Let's get this straight. The love of Christ is, He loves them. He loves us while we were yet sinners. They are not outside of the love of Christ. They are not outside of the mind of Christ. They are not outside of the reach of Christ. But he is really concerned about those people. And I'm going to ask you a question this morning, both individually and collectively. Is it worth it? <laughs> is it worth it to reach out to the people that are in your life? Is it worth it for me to, to uh, even be considered about the people that aren't in, in, in the chairs today, that, that aren't caring about Christ, that, will, that don't want to talk to you about Jesus? Is it even worth it for us to focus on that is it even worth it for you to be able to move out in a direction that is um, politically incorrect today to actually try to convince someone to switch religions or someone to buy into your religious ideas? Is it worth it? And so the main question today is this, is sharing the gospel worth it? Acts chapter 4. We're going to read the scripture. It's a little long, I know. Um, tends to be a theme in the last few weeks, but we're going to read this together. Acts chapter 1, verse 4, says, and as they were speaking to the people, now again, I'm gonna, we're going to work through this, but i got to pause because if you weren't here last week, you don't know what's going on with, with this. But remember, Peter and John had entered the temple. The man that was lame since birth was sitting there. He was 40 years old. We come to understand in this text. He was 40 years old, been sitting there his whole life begging. And Peter and John came in. He asked for money from them, and they had none. And he, they healed him in the name of Jesus. And that healing prompted this gathering of people coming around and saying, how is it possible that this man is now been restored? How is it possible that this man is now walking? At the last 40 years, we've seen him in church. We've seen his, his life. He's just, he's just a beggar. Something obviously had gone horribly wrong in his life. And um, here he was, and, but yet now he was restored. Now he was, he was there. He was, he was free in Christ, and he was running and jumping and praising God, and everybody was coming around him saying, how could this be? What, what was going on? It's kind of like what happened when you got saved. Everybody was wondering what in the wide world is going on. How is that person who used to be like this is now like that? 
How is this person that used to be all about themselves and, and running in a, in a direction that was far from God, denying God, hating the church, but now this person seems to be loving Jesus, following Jesus, embracing the scriptures, and his life and her life is being transformed. So when that happened to you, people start to look and go, what's the deal with you? Oh, it's just a fad. Oh, it's not going to work. Oh, you're just a religious freak. Oh, you've been brainwashed. Oh, you, you've ditched your education and you stopped thinking and you've become an ignorant religious person. So that's what was going on in this text. They had gathered around and as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captains of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, the religious leaders, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But when those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And they had set them in the midst, and they, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that which, or excuse me, that was rejected by you, the builders which was become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, did you catch the boldness there? I mean, that's a pretty outspoken little speech, isn't it? That's not very postmodern at all. That's not very politically correct at all. It was extremely risky. Could have been the last words they've ever uttered. They could have been killed for this. Could have spent the rest of their life in jail, separated from their families from this. So bold. So amazing. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, "As excuse me, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a for that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it." But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Amazing text of Scripture. You could take this text of Scripture and uh, change the setting a little bit, you can change what clothes they were wearing, you can change the titles that they have, and you could take what is going on in this text in Acts chapter 4, and you could plop it right down in the middle of our society today. 
You could put this scene at any university in, or college in our, in our country, in our world, for that matter, the Western world. You could put this conversation there. Talk, you could talk about anything but not intelligent design. Don't do that. Bring about any other theory of the universe and of origin of life and of all of those things. But do not talk about intelligent design. There is no creator, but talk about everything else. You could talk about any other religious figure, any other philosophy, any other worldview, any other perspective, but not the biblical one, not the Christian one. You just, anything but Jesus. Anything but the Bible. So, I'm asking you this morning, is it worth the trouble? Is your the people in your life, the people that aren't sitting here, the people that this morning could be represented by the empty chairs that are around us. Those people, is it, is it worth putting up with, with this? Now, first of all, we must understand that the good that happens when we share the gospel, really, what, what is the good? Well, very plainly, three basic things in this text are individuals are restored, people are added to the church, and we are recognized as being with Jesus. Now, those are three good things. Those are three amazing things. You know, Jesus did not come to make sick people whole. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Dead people alive. That's why Jesus came. That's what he was up to. That's why he died and rose again. Because we were all dead in our trespasses and sin, could not reach out to God, could not come to salvation, could not do anything but sin. We were trapped in this dead body of sin. And Jesus came and said, I want to make you alive. I want to make you alive. So Jesus came to make dead people alive. People that can't control their urges, people that can't control their sinful habits, people that can't stop being addicted, people that can't stop being in bondage. Jesus says, I've come to make you alive, to empower you, to fill you with my spirit so that you can say yes to God, so that you can obey the commands of God, and you can be alive forever and reunited and restored to your creator. Good things happen. People are added to the church. In other words, people are added to the community of believers where they're using their gifts to bless one another, where they're using their gifts to serve one another, where they're using their gifts to impact each other's lives. One of my favorite things as a pastor is to see people that don't know, didn't know each other before, they meet at church, and they become integral parts of each other's lives. Maybe then they walk through tragedy together. Maybe then they suffer greatly together and come out in victory together. And oh, my favorite of all, my favorite of all, was the fact that I did not know my wife before we met at church. That's like my favorite. Like we, yeah, she grew up in Oklahoma, I grew up in California, no possible way of us ever meeting, but aha, somehow she landed at a church in California where I had been a, a Christian for about a year and a half. So very, very fun for me. So, but individuals are restored, people are added to the church, and then this one, we are recognized as being with Jesus. I don't know where your educational level is, what your intellect level is, but as these people began to speak, there was something about the way that they spoke. And I don't know exactly how that is. I don't know exactly how this turned out, but the religious leaders somehow perceived that these guys were uneducated. I don't know, maybe they had poor grammar when they talked, like me, and they need an editor all the time. Um, maybe they... Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe there was something about them and the fact that they were from Galilee, some of them, their accent might have given them away. Um, maybe they would have had a weird accent to where, you know, I don't know what it is with America, but if you have, you know, you, you sound like a hick, then maybe you don't have much of an education, but if you have a British accent, you're really smart. I don't know how that, like, has worked. I, I don't know, but that is wrong, by the way, but that's, that's just kind of what we, how we perceive people, right? And... Um, and yeah, so we have, but this group of people was somehow, look at, it wasn't as though, man, these people are really amazing, these people are really powerful, these people are really gifted. No, it was the exact opposite. They, they, there was something about them that say, you know, they're really uneducated, but wow, their boldness. 
And while while they speak, they must have been with Jesus. And isn't that the greatest thing that people could ever say about you, even though maybe it's front-loaded with an insult? Man, we, we disagree with you. Man, we think you're an uneducated buffoon. Man, we think that you're just a, an emotional religious person. Man, we think that you're brainwashed by these people like these pastors that teach you. But you know what? As much as I don't like you, it appears to me that you've spent some time with this guy, Jesus. And they go, okay, then I'll put up with that sort of insult. Can people tell that you've been with Jesus? You know, I, I kind of bothered one time. I, I wondered, I had a student um, one time when another student said, well, yeah, Mr. Hobbs is a pastor of a church. And one of the students goes, he's a pastor? And I was like, oh, a bummer. I was like, it, was like, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I could see Mr. Hobbs being a pastor. It was, he's a pastor? And I was like, oh, oh boy, what did I do? What, what have I done wrong? Um, it was probably something in regards to some sort of joke or some sort of immature way I behave around students sometimes. Maybe that was it, because I, as I'm notorious for being a bit of a, a bit goofy with my students. But, but, <laughs> I know it's bad sometimes. Anyway, um, yeah, but that's the good. And so if those are the good things that are happening, well, what is, is the good that happens worth the challenges that come with sharing the gospel because I'm sure right now if I sat down with each one of you and I asked you I said you know what stops you from sharing the gospel with people you would have a list of things that are very real and very challenging and very important and significant and I don't want to devalue those barriers they're they're real they're hard they're 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 very very hard but is it worth it is it worth it so is it worth having the having, excuse me, is it worth many having a negative opinion of you? That's what they had of the disciples. You see, the leaders in this text were more concerned about their own reputation. Notice why they didn't do what they thought they should do. They believed, remember, these were religious leaders that believed that in obedience to God, they were to snuff out this idea about Jesus. These weren't mean spirits. These were people that loved God and that believed in what we call the Old Testament. They believed in their scriptures, and out of their fidelity to the scriptures and their love for God, they really, really thought, they honestly thought that these disciples were in error. They actually thought that Jesus of Nazareth was a blasphemer, and they thought that these people were walking in darkness and religiously corrupting the people. And so in that, I mean, I would, if I was in their shoes, if I was a religious leader in the first century, and I truly believed that Jesus was bad, and I truly believe that he was a liar, I would do everything in my power to try to convince people not to follow Jesus. But here these religious leaders were with their love for God, with their knowledge of the Scriptures, yet what controlled them? The opinion of the masses. That's what controlled them. They honestly believed that these disciples were in error and they should have arrested them and they should have had them stoned for blasphemy immediately. However, as a religious leader in the first century, they said, I can't do what God, I believe God telling me to do. I can't, believe, I can't go in the direction that the Scriptures, I believe, are telling me to go because of the opinion of the people. And I would imagine if I sat down with you and I asked you, why don't you share the gospel with people in your life? They would have something to do with their opinion of you. Oh, you fully believe that Jesus is the only way to receive salvation. You fully believe in the Scriptures. You fully believe that it is through Christ that we receive life. Yet, you're not telling people about it. Or you're afraid to tell people about it. Or there's some hesitancy. Or maybe you're like, Pastor, no, I, I, I tell people all the time, we need more of you. You need to spread your influence. Keep going. <laughs> so is it... Is it okay? The second thing, is it worth suffering? Peter and John were led by their belief in the resurrection and the power of Christ. That's what drove these men. That's what drove the men of the first century. That they too had the same beliefs as their religious leaders. They believed in the Old Testament Scriptures. They believed in a coming Messiah. They believed in the love for God. They had the same thing in common. They believed so much alike. 
But in this one area, they had changed. One area, they had been renewed. And they had come to believe that Jesus actually did resurrect from the dead. Peter says it here in the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard. We cannot help but go by the things that we've seen and heard. And so the people, the religious leaders were afraid of the opinion of the people. Peter and John and the others like him were so locked into what they had seen and heard. They were so focused on the evidence. They had seen that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. And if he actually did raise from the dead, I am compelled then to teach his teachings. I am compelled then to believe that He has been the long-awaited for Messiah. I am compelled then to believe that Jesus is the one that is spoken of in all of our Scriptures because Jesus fulfilled all that was promised of Him and Jesus actually raised from the dead after being killed. And so based on the evidence, I'm compelled. But yet they suffered. Yet they all died a martyr's death because they were so compelled by the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. So it was worth suffering for them. Thirdly, is it worth allowing people to make their own judgments about you? See, the main point from Peter is found in 19 and 20. It says, whatever is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you make that decision. In other words, what Peter is saying to them He's saying to them, if you leave us in prison, leave us in prison. That's your, your decision to make. Take us out and stone us, your decision to make. You sit in the seat of judgment. And so he says, you, you make the judgment you need to make. Leave me in prison or have me stoned. It's your decision. Do what you got to do. But me, based upon the evidence, I have to speak about Jesus and his resurrected. He, I, I have to speak about that. So you, I have to speak about this. You have to do what you do. You sit in judgment seat, so make your decision, and we'll, we'll go from there. But I, he said, I have to speak about the evidence. And he just let them make their decision about them. So maybe it would be you saying, you, you can call me whatever you want to call me. You can disregard me as a religious fanatic. You can... Um, put all kinds of tags on me, you're, you're, you're bigoted, um, you're narrow-minded, you're, you're a hater, you're whatever, just okay, then, then you can call me that if you, if, if you like to, you, that's fine, with, you, you have the right to call me whatever you want to call me, and so call me that, but I'm compelled by the evidence to speak of the resurrection of Jesus. And so I ask you again, is sharing the gospel worth it? You see, I have to ask you this other question that will help us answer that one. And that is this. Is your faith in Jesus marginalized? Now, let me be careful with that statement for a second. Because God has been working in my heart with, with this question. I'm not asking if your faith has been marginalized. But your faith in Jesus been marginalized. You see, two important changes have happened over the last 25 years. Barna Research Group and a Lifeway Research Group, they do a lot of research on the church. And so I went and did a little bit of digging. Found a couple key changes. Number one, people today believe it is the church's responsibility to reach people, not individual Christians. Interesting. Just 10% of Christians in 1993, and now let me, before I stop, I gotta stop there. They did a test in 1993, Barner Research Group. Now they're repeating that. Um, they repeated that same study, replicated that study, um, and then came out with the evidence in 2018. Okay, so from 93 to 18. Okay, so just 10% of Christians in 1993 who had shared about their faith agreed with the statement converting people to Christianity is the job of the local church. So 90% of Christians in 1993 said it's our individual responsibility and 10% said it's the church. In other words, the pastor and the leadership and official kind of stuff. Only 10% in 1993, 25 years later, these, or excuse me, three in 10, in other words, 30% of Christians who have had conversations about their faith say that evangelism is the church's responsibility, 29% a nearly threefold increase. So in the last 25 years, three times as many Christians today 
than 25 years ago believe that it is the job of the church. And so what has happened in the local church because of this increase in this belief is we're not gonna speak publicly and personally about our faith. We'll leave that to the church. We'll have the church build programs, build services, build ministries. We'll we'll have the church do all of this and we'll show up. But here we won't talk much about it. In our neighborhoods, workplaces, families, we don't talk about it, but we'll show up. Okay, and what that did is birthed what's called the attractional model of church growth, where church leaders get together and say, we're gonna put on the best show, the biggest show, have all the programming, everything, to where some Christian universities actually have a degree that I forgot the name of, but really the whole degree focuses on from the time you drive into the parking lot to the time you drive out of the parking lot that everything's done for you. That's the attractional model of church. We're gonna find out what you want and we're gonna give it to you to get you in the seat the attractional model of church growth. But see, if it is the job of the local church to do that, what you're left with is to say, well, I guess I'll just invite people to church. And I know that so many of you do that. Almost all of you, I would imagine, all of you in the room today have invited somebody to church in the last two, three months. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing but it's a slightly weird thing because, again, I'm not saying this is horrible or this is 100% bad, but I think that it's lacking something. And it's, well, let's go, I'll take you to church because at church they do everything for you. Which is kind of weird. I'm not saying it's 100% bad, I'm just saying it's kind of weird. Okay? A second change Less Christians today believe that they are responsible for sharing their faith. Notice this. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. That statement. In 1993, nine out of ten Christians who had shared their faith agreed. So 90% of Christians say, yes, my responsibility is to share my faith. But today, or 2018, only 64% believe that. 25% drop. So less and less Christians in our culture today are believing that they're responsible to share their faith. So we have a growing sense that it's the church's job and a lessening of this responsibility of me. So I'm asking the question, is it really worth it? Is it worth it for you to share your faith? So why are Christians so reluctant to share their faith? Why, what's, what's the deal? Why, why these two big changes First of all, less interest. That's number one. This coming from Barna Research study as well, this same study. There's less interest. The overarching cultural trend of secularism, relativism, and pluralism. I'm going to believe that you are for 21st century thinking people and know what those words are. If you don't know what secularism, relativism, and pluralism mean, you are out of touch with the culture in which you live. You have disassociated yourself with your world. And so many Christians don't know the meaning of those three words. They know what sanctification means and regeneration, justification, and I'm glad you know those words. But if you know those words and you don't know these words, you have no ability to connect with your culture because your residing culture, the culture in which we live in, the culture in which the church resides in, is secular, believes in relativism, and is a pluralistic society. And perhaps if you don't know those words, I should do better at teaching them. Amen? Secularism, it's just all about man and people. Religion doesn't matter. Religion's out of schools. Religion's out of public arena. Religion doesn't come into play. Religion is relegated to the private sector of your life. And as a global community, we don't talk about religion. Relativism, Truth is relative to you. Whatever you believe to be true is true for you. Whatever I believe is true for me. There is no objective reality. There is no objective truth, which objectivism is. It's true or false, regardless of what you and I think about it. And then pluralism is I can have my religious belief and live in my lane and you have your religious or non-religious belief and live in your lane and we all just keep progressing through life, staying in our lanes. Don't cross over. Don't talk to them. 
Don't tell them about Jesus. They're Muslim. Don't do that. And I have four wonderful Muslim students that get the gospel every single day and I challenge their belief in the Quran and in, in Muhammad every single day. Every single day. I get in their lane all the time. And then finally, in the digital age where lies are propagated at a much rapidly, much more rapid, rapid state. So the overarching cultural trends of secularism, relativism, pluralism, and the digital age are contributing to a society that is less interested in religion and that has marginalized the place of spirituality in everyday life, and this has flooded its way into the church. Flooded its way into the church. Denominational leaders in the Church of the Nazarene tell we local pastors, if you want to average 50 in attendance in your morning worship service, you better have a church of 100 because I guarantee the members of your church are not going to be there every week. Maybe twice a month. Maybe. When they don't have anything else to do. Maybe. I was sitting watching a baseball game with a friend of mine that happens to be a pastor in another denomination, and he started laughing, and he said, Paul, I've got people that I don't see in four, five, six months. And I run into them at the grocery store, and they say, how you doing, pastor? And they, if somebody asks them who their pastor is, they'll say me. And if somebody asks them what home church they belong to, they'll say mine. I haven't seen them in six months. Because we're just less interested. The second is this, that the culture has shaped the Christian more than Jesus. You see, when somebody, one of my students or one person, a member of our church, says to me, well, pastor, isn't it wrong to judge? They're taking a word Jesus used, a phrase Jesus used, and applying a cultural definition to the words of Jesus and thinking they're being biblical. Oh, no. That could be the worst combination. But what we've done in our culture is we've taken the word, the English translation of the word in the Bible, and we've applied secular definitions to the biblical words. And that might just be the worst catastrophe the church has suffered in the last 50 years. That, that, because you think, oh, I believe in the Bible, so I'm not going to judge anybody. I'm not going to tell anybody they're wrong. Oh, no. That's not what Jesus meant. <laughs> Jesus was talking against a judgmental spirit that was picking on everybody's faults as if they didn't have any. That's what Jesus was talking about, by the way. Jesus is just talking about the hypocritical nature of judgmentalism, that you with all of your faults are ignoring them and pointing out everybody else's continually ad nauseum. That's what Jesus is talking about. Not that we should not go to our loved ones and say, I care about your life and the direction that you're headed is going is to be destruction. And if you keep treating your wife like that, you're, she's going to leave you. Well, don't judge me. Jesus said not to judge. Okay, treat your kids like that. By the time they're 22, they're going to hate your guts. Don't judge me. Okay, self-destruct. That's what you, if you, if you must. As a result, Christians in America today have to live with the tension between Jesus' commands to tell others the good news and the growing cultural taboos against proselytizing a core part of Christianity from its origins, and many practicing Christians believe is essential to the salvation of their listeners. So in other words, essential to the Bible is you sharing the resurrection of Jesus with people in your life. That's essential to the teachings of Jesus. We call it the great commandment. The mission of God. The mission of Jesus. Yet people in our world today that follow Jesus have a passionate love for Jesus. Not denying the love for Jesus have so allowed the culture to influence their understanding of Scripture that they're using biblical words but teaching cultural ideas and calling themselves Christians and saying, I'm not supposed to judge and I'm not supposed to tell anybody they're wrong so I'm not spreading the gospel anymore and we've just disobeyed the Scriptures while thinking we're obeying them. And we have a mass confusion in the church today. So, been thinking a lot about this and kind of challenged me in a lot of ways this week. And maybe this last point before I stop is it's more for me than you. 
but I'll say it anyway. Maybe we as a church should focus on what the Bible says about Jesus. Maybe we should just do that. And what I've been challenged personally to tell you is that perhaps, I'm thinking out loud with you today, perhaps we should stop inviting people to church and just invite them to think about Jesus. Maybe just have them, instead of saying, you should come to my church Sunday, say, hey, would, would you do me a favor and read a couple pages out of the Gospel of John? Would you just consider this person Jesus? You know, it's Easter's coming up and the whole world's in a frenzy about the Easter bunny and all these kinds of things, but this person Jesus, have you ever considered who he was? Have you ever considered some of the things he said? Some of the crazy claims he made? <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, just for a historical lesson on this, this person, Jesus, that said some way out there things. Because I started thinking about this. As I've been asking you to invite people to church, I'm thinking about the people that you know that aren't in the seats with you today, and I'm thinking, why would they even show up? I mean, if I'm not a Christian, why would I want to go to your church? I have zero interest in your songs. I have zero interest in your pastor and what he has to say. I have zero interest in the Bible. What makes you think that I would actually want to go sit there on a Sunday morning? What, that is the furthest thing that I would want to do if I'm not a Christian. But if I'm just a simple thinking person, perhaps, perhaps I'll consider a person. Perhaps because you're my friend and I care about you and you ask me to read something that'll take me about 10 minutes. Perhaps because I'm your friend, I'll give you a little nod and read something for 10 minutes. Perhaps. I would much rather sit for 10 minutes and read something than to go sit for... God knows how long it feels when the pastor's talking. So maybe we should do a little bit more talking about Jesus and a little less, can a pastor say this and should I say this? A little less thinking about church? I don't know. I don't know how to pray on that one. Maybe it's not an either or thing, maybe it's a both and thing. But I do know that the words of Philip talking to the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, verse 35, he says this, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told the good news about Jesus. That just kind of stuck with me. That just kind of stuck with me, thinking this person had a question. This Ethiopian had been reading out of the scroll of Isaiah and he didn't know who they were talking about. And so he asked Philip, who were they talking about? And from the scriptures, Philip said, they're talking about Jesus, and let me explain to you who he is. You see, now, if I'm interested in this person, Jesus, I may come to your church. I might. I may show up at a Bible study. I, I may ask you to come over and have coffee and talk to me a little bit more about this person, Jesus. And so maybe we should make it less about church and more about Jesus. It's a, it's a thought. And I'm wondering if you think it's worth it. Do you think it's worth it to talk about Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus? Are you convinced? I know I'm leading up to Easter. <laughs> and by the time we're through with Easter, you're going to know the theories of the empty tomb and all of these things. You're, you're going you're to be well-versed in that. And if you have any doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, I hope to clear those up during the month of Easter for you. But this person, Jesus, who was he? This Jesus of Nazareth. What did he really say? What is he really doing? What was he up to? You see, that Jesus died for a reason. There was a reason he had to die for you. You know that, right? There was a reason. You might know. I mean, we, we, we love the fact that Jesus died for us but did you know why he had to do that? What about me caused Jesus to have to die 
What about God the Father? What, why was he demanding that? What is the deal with God? Why can't he just forgive? Why, why, did, why did someone have to die for that? That just seems so horrible. I'm only going to forgive you if someone dies. Who, who, does, who talks like that? Who, what is, what's, that sounds, that, that's one of the reasons why if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't be one. Because you're going to tell me about a God that demands someone to die before he forgives them? Who does? Who, what, that's ridiculous. I'm going to forgive you because I love you and you ask me for forgiveness. I'm not going to say, well, they kill your puppy. Take your cat and string it up. So that, though from a human perspective, that sounds just, that sounds horrible. So there had to be some reason. There had to have been something. And there was. It's called justice. It's called fairness. It's called righteousness and holiness. That God can't tolerate sin, can't be around sin. He can't. But he loves you so much. And so he had to say, is it worth it? See, he's going to say, I'm holy, I'm perfect in every way. Cannot have sin in my presence. Can't do it. It would, it would, it would, it would cause me to be less than what I am. I, it's impossible for me, God would say, to allow sin in my presence. But I love these sinners so much. They are so broken and so flawed. They're so selfish and so rebellious. But I love them so much. And so gee, God said it's worth it. It's worth it to take on flesh and reveal myself in this person, Jesus. And as I reveal myself in this person, Jesus, I'll die their death and I will, because I'm the author of life, take my life up back again so that they too can have a resurrection and be purified and then I can let these wonderful images of God back into my presence. And God says, it's worth it. So if God would look at you and say, you're worth every bit of the pain and every bit of the sacrifice and every bit of the suffering, God said, you are so worth it. Could you then say, when God believes I'm worth it, is my neighbor worth it? Is my child worth it? Is my brother, sister worth it? Is my coworker worth it? God would say, you bet they are. And Jesus, that's why Jesus invites us into his suffering because people are worth it. You see? I've gone way too long. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you, Lord, um, that you deemed it worth it and Father, these people that are here today, Lord, they're so valuable. They're so amazing. They're so beautiful, Lord. You, you, you created them. Each one of them you spoke life into. And you love them so much. But Lord, you are holy. You are perfect. You are flawless. Yet you... You look at a bunch of people that are, not, that are not that and you love them so much. And you've said that because of justice and holiness, there has to be a penalty. There has to be. There has to be. And so, Father, you, you said, I'm not going to make them pay that price. I'm going to have mercy on them. I'm going to pay the price. God, you said that you would take on all of their sin and my sin. And that you would not require payment from us. You satisfied your own justice. And then you just opened your arms to people. And you said, whosoever will can come that through Christ the door to restoration has been opened. That through Christ a pathway through death to eternal life has been provided. And God, you simply said, come. With all of your brokenness, 
with all of your need, with all of your confusion, with all of your questions, with all of your doubts, you said, come. And so, Father, I pray today that each believer here today would find their neighbors worth it, their brothers and sisters and their children and their grandchildren worth it because of the value of a human being, the intrinsic worth of a human life. It's far beyond anything that we can compare it to. And Father, we live in a day and age where people are continually devalued for their beliefs, that people are continually devalued because of their positions, but Father, we, we seek as a church community to ask you for help because we need to raise the value of each individual around us. We need to see that they are image bearers of their Creator and therefore eminently valuable. And Father, it is worth being called names. It is worth being shut out. It is worth having a negative opinion put upon you because we cannot but speak according to the evidence that the tomb is empty. Jesus of Nazareth did die on a Roman cross. He was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That tomb was sealed with a Roman seal. That tomb had a Roman guard watching over it, and yet that tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, we believe everything else that you said about yourself, and we surrender to you as Lord. We surrender to you as Savior. We surrender to you as our provider and giver of life, and we follow you regardless of what it may cost, regardless of what we go through, we'll follow you because you've deemed us worthy and we've deemed you worthy. May we be Christians that live according to the evidence. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you receive communion,